Genesis chapter 10. Hey, be gracious to me, please. Okay, there's a lot of names in uh, these chapters. We're going to do two chapters today, Lord willing. There's a lot of names. Be gracious. Pray for me. If I ever hear you make fun of me saying the names, I'll call on you. I promise you. We'll be in the middle of church and I'll say, hey, you know what? What's, you know, come up here and read this passage for me. People used to say I did Bible study through intimidation. I'm not afraid to call on anybody. It's just like, what do you think, Jim? What do you think, Bob, Sally, whatever the case may be? Notice I use names that aren't in the church, right? There's no Jim, Bob, Sally in the church. Not three of them, not one of them. Jim, Bob, Sally, like from the South or something like that. Okay. Anyway, Genesis chapter 10. Let's pray. Father God, we just... For the time that we have together right now in your word, Father, in spite of my inabilities, in spite of the fact that, Lord, I fail so miserably and I'm so in need of you as my Savior, Lord, would you speak through me? Would you anoint the teaching of your word today? And would you just send your word out in power and impact the hearts of those that are listening today, those that are studying along and reading along? Lord, would you meet your church, Lord, in such a powerful way. Set our hearts on fire. Lord, we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Genesis chapter 10, it's commonly known as the table of nations. And it describes for us the origin of all the different peoples in the world. And last week I mentioned, you know, sometimes I watch the tapes and I hear myself. I'm such a ding dong. I'm sorry, man. You know, know, I say things wrong all the time. Hopefully you're not catching it. But last time I mentioned William F. Albright, and I made a mistake. I said he was born 1891, lived till 1917. Transposition in my mind. He was born 1891. He died in 1971. He is universally, he was universally acknowledged as the world's leading authority of archaeology in the Near East, even though he was not a believer in the errancy of Scripture. But he did say concerning the table of nations, he regarded it as the greatest archaeologicalist, archaeologicalist. Anyway, he was regarded as like a really good guy. Okay, He was regarded as the greatest archaeologist of our time. And uh, he said, this is what he said, Uh, regarding Genesis chapter 10, I quote, the 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations, again, he's referring to Genesis chapter 10, remains an astonishing, accurate document. Man, that's the Bible. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just, you know, somebody's made up story. The greatest archaeologist in the world, that's his scholarly opinion about at least Genesis chapter 10. And he wasn't a believer. At least he didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Anyway, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to him after the flood. And again, I've tried to keep all the generations straight for you. If you're taking notes, you might want to make sure you kind of double check me on them. But all of us were descendants of one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as we go through the genealogies here in Genesis chapter 10, especially if you have some kind of idea of your national heritage, you'll be able to make an educated guess of which of these three boys you're a descendant of, okay? The explanation of the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 is Genesis chapter 11. The genealogies are given here in Genesis chapter 10, but we see the division and the dispersion of the people making up those nations in Genesis chapter 11. And as you know, the dispersion of the people and the division of the languages, that all followed as a result of what occurred there at the Tower of Babel. Now, this is the historical record for all the nations and nationalities of the world. 
And the temptation for us is just to quickly breeze through these chapters. But you know what? If we did that, and I, I have no intention of just bogging down. Again, we're going to try to do two chapters tonight. But um, if we did that, what we would do is miss so much of what the Holy Spirit wants us to know, what, what the Holy Spirit thinks is important for us to know. That's the reason why he recorded these things. And a lot of the world views genealogies a little bit differently than we do. You know, as Americans, as Westerners, we're so individualistic. You know, we're very independent. We're just individuals. And so we think that way. When we meet people and we want to get to know somebody, one of the first questions we ask is, hey, what do you do? Because that's kind of our identity is tied to what we do. But in the Middle East and other parts of the world, things are a little bit different. When you're trying to get to know somebody there, the, the first question you ask is not, hey, what do you do, right? It's who's your father? Who's your family? Family ties and genealogies are very important to most of the world. Family loyalty and tribal loyalty, it was back in the day. And now, and again, much of the world, it's prized. And in the Middle East, especially in other parts of the world, it's very, very important to know your genealogy. So verse 2, it says, The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. Okay, these are Japheth's seven sons. Gomer, and I know some of you older people are thinking Gomer Pyle. It's a different Gomer. Gomer is modern day Eastern Turkey. Rhea's cracking up. <laughs> I just love the courtesy laughs that I get out of Rhea. Makes me feel like I'm talking to somebody, you know? Anyway, Gomer is modern day Eastern Turkey. Magog, okay, and I'm going to give you the areas that all these kids kind of grew up in and where they settled. Magog in ancient times referred to nations immediately to the north of the Caucasus Mountains, okay, which would be today modern day Russia. Madai refers to the Medes in the region of modern day Iran. So the Kurds are descendants of Madai today, the Kurds today. And Javan, is a name of those that we know today as Greeks. Tubal and Meshach, they were military states. They also were located north of Israel, north of the Caucasus Mountains. Again, what we know today as Russia. Tyrus seems to refer to a seafaring people located on the Aegean Sea, north of Greece. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Togarma. This is the second generation of Japheth, right? Through his son Gomer, again, modern day Turkey and western parts of Armenia. Ashkenaz refers to the Scythians. Okay, they were people who lived to the north of the Black Sea at that time. Rapheth were people located north of Israel. And Togarma, again, modern day Turkey. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Yeah, a little slow on that one, huh? Uh, this is a second generation of Japheth through the son of Javan. Elisha, they were people that came from modern day Cyprus. Tarshish. Tarshish probably refers to the furthest extreme of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, you know, the western limit of the Mediterranean, probably Spain. However, some scholars believe as far west as the British Isles. Kittim, these were people who were on the island of Cyprus. Dodanim lived in part of what is today a modern-day Greece. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into the lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So Genesis 11 is going to give us more detail of this dispersion that's being described here. Okay, which is the dispersion again that occurred after the Tower of Babel. And it's believed that the descendants of Japheth are the Caucasian people of Europe, 
Russia, Northern Mediterranean Sea area. A major branch of his line seemed to have branched off and headed eastward into Persia and India. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Now this is the second generation of Ham. Cush is modern-day southern Egypt. It also includes modern-day northern Ethiopia and northern Sudan. Mizraim is the ancient name for Egypt. And because the word is in the plural form, it's believed that these people occupied and inhabited northern and southern Egypt. Put refers to modern-day Libya. Canaan refers to modern-day Israel. And remember, the Canaanites were later displaced by the Jews in the land of Canaan because of their sin. Verse 7, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca, the sons of Ramah, and Sheba were Sheba and Dedan. Now, this is a second generation of Cush. It's the third generation of Ham. Seba refers to those people of northern Egypt, the people that were in the portion of northern Egypt. Havilah also today refers to modern day northern Arabia. Sabta refers to modern day Saudi Arabia and the southwestern shores of the Persian Gulf. Ramah, Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan, all parts of modern day Saudi Arabia. Verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Another descendant of Ham through Cush is Nimrod. And I tell you what, you know, as I was preparing for this study, I mean, Nimrod is such an interesting study. I mean, I wish we would just take a day or two and just dive deep into who this character is. You would be shocked at what you will learn. It's amazing. But Nimrod, he was a very dominant, very strong, charismatic leader in the land. And it says he began to be a mighty one on the earth. It could be translated that he began to become a tyrant on earth. He was a mighty tyrant. And verse 9 says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The problem with Nimrod is he's an ungodly man. Nimrod's name means, let us rebel. And uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder about Cush's heart. Did it become so sinful that he encouraged his son to rebel against God? We don't know, but why would you name your son? Hey, let us rebel. And again, in Genesis 11, we're gonna see Nimrod. He's gonna lead the people in a rebellion against God. It says, that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but it's probably better translated that he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Now, the Jewish Targum, it says this, and I quote, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of God and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore, it is said, as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. And because of who Nimrod was, this phrase, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, it became a proverb. That's what's being quoted here is this proverb. And the context shows us that it's not a compliment. The idea is that Nimrod was an offense before the face of God. And it's not talking where it says he's a mighty hunter. It's not talking about his ability to hunt. He wasn't a hunter of animals. He was the hunter of men. He was a, a warrior. And it was through his ability to fight and kill and rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states were consolidated. Nimrod is actually a picture of a mighty tyrant that is going to be coming on the scene in the last days. He's a picture of the Antichrist who will be a terrible tyrant. He's going to be a mighty dictator and he'll come on the scene and uh, 
He's going to lead people in rebellion against God. And he's going to enforce his rule on earth with just tremendous, ruthless brutality. And people that aren't going to bow down to him, he's just going to kill them, right? Just to enforce that rule. In the book of Revelation, we also read about mystery Babylon, which is associated with the Antichrist rule. When we get to Revelation, you know, in about 60 years, we'll, <laughs> I'll remind you about that, okay? Verse 10, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, translates this, the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, because that's what we're talking about. These are the cities that he built in the land of Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. And that is the principal city, it says. Now, these cities, again, they're all built in Assyria, what was known back in the day as Assyria. And I'm sure you recognize names of some of these cities. And the reference to the primary city is that these other cities grew so large that they became one great city. And that great city was called Nineveh. Nineveh was this huge metropolis. Jonah 3.3 tells us that it took three days to walk across it. Verse 13, Mizraim begot Ludum, Anamim, Lahibim, Naphtalim, Parthrasim, and Casluhim, uh, and uh, him and him and him and him, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Uh, now, this is the record. It takes us back again to the second generation of Mizraim, the third generation of Ham. And again, Mizraim is ancient Egypt. Mizraim's descendants settled in Egypt and they began to spread out and populate other areas of the, the world. And Kaphtarim is mentioned here and they're the people that settled in the island of Crete. Verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now this is the second generation of Canaan, the third generation of Ham. Sidon was Canaan's firstborn, and he and his descendants, they were the Phoenician people. Verse 16, the Jebusites, it continues the Jebusites, the Amorite. And the Jebusites, now they're interesting to us because they're descendants of the Canaanites. And you might remember that when David came into the land, when he was king, he came into the land and he came and made Jerusalem his capital. Before that, the city was known as Jebus. It was the capital of the Jebusites. The Amorites are located in modern day Jordan in Syria. And the rest of the list through verse 18 are all people, ancient people, in the area of modern-day Lebanon. So we continue, verse 16. And the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zamorites, the Hamathites, afterward the people of the Canaanites were dispersed. And again, this dispersion is a reference to the events of the Tower of Babel, and it's further explained in Genesis chapter 11. So the descendants of Ham... They're those that populated North Africa, around the Mediterranean Sea, moving into Arabia and parts of Iran and Jordan, Assyria, and into Lebanon there, north of Israel. Verse 19 through 20. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to the languages, in the lands and in their nations. Verse 19, it was just a description of the territory. Uh, you know, we don't really know exactly the boundaries of their territory because some of these cities are lost to antiquity. Verse 20, it's another reference to the dispersion after the Tower of Babel. Verse 21, and children were born also to Shem, 
the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. So this is the second generation of Shem. Eber is of particular interest to us because it's from Eber that the word Hebrew comes. And you might recall the first mention of the word Hebrew is when Abraham is called a Hebrew in Genesis 14, 13, giving us some indication that he was probably a child, a descendant of Eber. And now what God is doing, he's beginning now to narrow our focus. Okay, here's the origin of the the Hebrew people, and God is going to get our focus in a chapter or two on Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, whom God will bring the Messiah into the world. Verse 22, the sons of Shem are Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. 26 descendants of Shem are mentioned. Elam referring to a portions of Persia, Babylonia, and Iran. Asher was an area of ancient Assyria, as well as Arphaxad. Lud also referring to the regions of Assyria. And Aram refers to modern-day Syria, not Assyria, Syria and Mesopotamia. Verse 23, the sons of Aram are Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. And the region of Arabia was named after Uz or us. <laughs> the reason that this is interesting to us, okay, is that Job came from us, right? He came from the land of us. Our facts had verse 24 begot Selah, Selah begot Eber. And now again, this is the second generation of our facts had, third generation of Shem. Verse 25 to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days, the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. So I was here super late last night and graciously, Rhea, she texted me about her theological views regarding Peleg and uh, we don't have time to go into it, but I urge you, please ask Rhea what those views are. She'd be more than happy to share it with you and enlighten you. So anyway, just continuing on verse 25. I still have the text. I'll show you. If she won't tell you, I'll show you. Anyway, now this is the second generation of Eber. It's the fourth generation of Shem. We're told in the days of Peleg is when the earth was divided. So this is an important time reference for us now because it's five generations from Noah and the flood. That's when the Tower of Babel and the events around it occurred and that subsequent dispersion of the people. Verse 26, Joktan begot Almadad, Seleph, Hazamazveth, Jerah. Joktan's descendants lived mostly in the Arabian Peninsula. You know, somebody told me a long time ago when I first started teaching, when you come to names, just say them fast. Don't give any indication that you don't know what you're doing because people won't question you. So that's what I'm trying my hardest. Verse 27, Hadaram, Uzel, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, uh, yeah, that guy, you see him, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab, all these were sons of Joktan. So some believe that this Jobab here may be the one we know as Job in the Old Testament. Verse 30, and their dwelling place was in Misha as you go towards Sephar, the mountains to the east. And again, this is just a description of their regional borders for the sons of Shem. Verse 31, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. And again, this is a description of the dispersion that's going to occur there. And we're going to read about it in greater detail, Genesis 11. What's important to us is that Shem is the line through which the Jews will come, as well as many of the Arab races. I mean, they share the same bloodline. It's, it's amazing to think about. There is such odds, but you know what? They're family. Verse 32, these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. 
And from these, the nations were divided into the earth after the flood, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So what language do you think it was? What do you think they were speaking back then? When I lived in Hungary, some of my Hungarian friends, they would come to me and they'd say, Gary, what do you call somebody that speaks three languages? Trilingual? Yeah, that's right. What do you call somebody that speaks two languages? Bilingual? Yeah, good. Gary, what do you call somebody that speaks one language? Yeah, I don't know. American. Americans are too dumb to learn a second language. <laughs> That's what they would say. That's the language we're going to speak in heaven, they would say, because Americans are just too dumb to learn a second language. But the language probably wasn't English. You know, it was probably some ancient form of Hebrew. And that's thought that to be the case because many of these names, if not all of them, have a Hebrew root to them. So we start out here in Genesis 11 and we read, the whole earth had one language. Well, is that a contradiction? And this, this is something that people will bring up to us. Look, that's a contradiction, right? Because we read in Genesis 10 verse 5, verse 20 and verse 30, that the people were separated according to their language. And here it says there was one language. So it's a contradiction, right? No, of course not. It's not a contradiction at all. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Genesis chapter 10 is the division of genealogical lines. And now Genesis chapter 11 is going to explain to us the origin of all the different languages. And this is a very common way in Hebrew writings. What the writer will do is he'll present the story to you, kind of give you the overview of the story. And then he goes back and he fills it in with greater detail. And we're going to see this style of writing many times in the book of Genesis. So you want to get used to it. You want to begin recognizing that style. Now, before we, we go on and read about the city of uh, Babel, also known as Babylon, right? We're going to read about the Tower of Babel, also known as the Tower of Babylon. Verse 2, it says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found the plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. Technically, I don't know how technical you guys want to get. It's not actually that they journeyed from the east. It was, it was that they journeyed eastward. Okay, but they said to one another, verse three, come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. And it's because they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. Interestingly enough, J.D. Rockefeller, reading this verse here, he understood that if there was asphalt, I think it's called bitum. If there was asphalt laying on the surface, that meant there was oil underneath the surface. And J.D. Rockefeller, he went to the Middle East and he uh, discovered through exploration vast oil fields. He made millions of dollars. So kids, listen, there's money to be made by reading the Bible. Okay, you heard it here first. Anyway, <laughs> they said, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so at this point, we're four generations from the flood. And even though that the flood was a judgment on sinful man, sin continued to be in the hearts of men. How crazy is it to realize that it's just four generations after the flood and the entire earth now is just, it's just thrown into rebellion against God. And I want to point out that this phrase, they say, let us. You know, it's mentioned three times. And what you see by that is this world rebellion, this venture, is very man-centric, right? It's what we see is the pride of man here. There's no consideration of God or what he thinks, what he wants. They say, let us make a name for ourselves." They're only interested in man-centered, man-glorifying ways to approach God. And I just see personally, as I just understand that, 
Man, my mind just thinks about the contrast that we see in Jesus Christ, our, our precious Savior, who left heaven. He left fellowship with God the Father, fellowship with God the Holy Spirit. He left the worship of the angels. And it says, the Bible tells us in Philippians that he made himself of no reputation. Here these men are, let us, man, let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted reputation. But here Jesus Christ, man, he made himself of no reputation. And he took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men that he might give his life a ransom for many. And glorifying God the Father in the process, boy, talk about humility. Talk about just amazing grace that he would do such a thing for each one of us. Well, they said to one another, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which is in defiance and it's a direct rebellion to what God said to man. When man got off the ark, God gave them instructions what they were supposed to do. Genesis 9.1. He told them to be fruitful and fill the earth, right? They were to fill the earth, but four generations after the flood, they don't want to fill the earth. They want to gather together and live in this one big kingdom ruled by this godless dictator. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, this tower that we're going to be reading about is the Tower of Babel, which is completely, totally, 100%, nothing but idolatry. This is just outright idolatry. And I'm sure they didn't actually think that they were going to build this tower to reach, build a tower to reach up into heaven to reach God. But it was a religious building, and they were trying to reach uh, the heavens. It was a place of worship, right? It was more likely built as a tower, you know, an observation tower of the heavens. Uh, it was probably a ziggurat. That's kind of a, a common construction we see all around the world for this type of venture, it was complete with a zodiac so that they could observe the stars and such to determine the future, try to get in touch with the planets, how the planets would guide lives and help them make decisions. It was very common. This was very common to the Babylonian religion. Most astrological and occult practices have their roots right here. They go back to the Tower of Babel. And I just want to tell you, okay, ain't nothing personal. But if you're reading your horoscope every day, this is the satanic origin of the horoscope. All right. So the Tower of Babel, it's the beginning of the false, satanic, idolatrous religion. It was a tower they were going to build to make their way to God. So what we see here is the beginning of a religion. Man's pride is here and the beginning of this false religious System. I said the beginning of religion. It's the beginning of rebellion, man's pride, and this false religious system. And they aren't satisfied with the way God has revealed to them that they are to approach him with the blood of the innocent in place of the guilty. They're not satisfied with that. They want to make their own way to God, and they want to come to God on their own terms. It's a problem. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. You read it, and it's almost like you hear God's heart breaking. The people are one, they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so don't miss this. First off, a couple things I want to point out here. First off, don't miss this. The subtle reference to the Trinity where he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Secondly, this is the origin of the different languages. And I want you to just take a minute. Picture this in your mind, okay? You know, 
these guys, they're working on the Tower of Babel. They wake up in the morning, they have breakfast, they slug back some coffee, they kiss their wives goodbye, they go out to the job site. You know, all the trades are there, they're laughing, they're joking around. You know how construction guys are. There's more joking around than working. You know, they got coffee breaks and, and all of that. And uh, all of a sudden, God snaps his finger. And now nobody's able to understand anybody else. They just, they're looking at each other all, all strange. And, uh, you know, they just can't understand what the other guy's saying, right? And uh, they go home to their wives and they want to say, honey, you know, the strangest thing happened, but it comes out all garbledly gook, right? And, you know, wives like, and, uh, you know, I mean, they can't understand. And I tell you what, sometimes I have a hard time just understanding people and we're speaking the same language. If you ask Tina, that she, was, she would say, yeah, you know what? I don't know what he's saying when he's talking to me. But anyway, uh, you know what I mean. But that's what happened. Just imagine it. In an instant, God, man, just changes things up. God is all powerful. I mean, there's nothing that's too hard for him. There's nothing that stands in his way of accomplishing his will. And there's nothing that overthrows his plans. And that should be a comfort to each one of us because his thoughts towards us are good thoughts. You know, he's got plans for each one of us and nothing's going to come in the way of accomplishing his plans in our lives. Now, dividing the language was a way to keep sinful man from delving deeper, actually, into sin. It was actually gracious. And I want you, every time you turn on the news... And you see, you know, a shot there of the UN and everybody has their headphones on. I want you to remember God was bringing division. That's an, that right there is evidence of God bringing division of the languages because of man's sinful heart. Man, you look at the United Nations and you just be reminded of just the sinfulness of man's heart that God uh, brought language division and the different languages of the world keep sinful man from you know it keeps them just disunified enough to allow God's plan to move forward throughout all the world man God is amazing isn't he verse 8 so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And again, it's here that we see the construction of the Tower of Babel ending in failure and confusion. Babel is synonymous with confusion. You know, we'll say a person's babbling when they're speaking incoherently, incomprehensibly. And the Tower of Babel is not only the beginning of, but is also a picture of all false religions in the world. It's where man initiates. They initiate on earth trying to reach out to God based on their good efforts and their good works. And this is what all the false religious systems of the world do. They're earth-based and it's man's attempt to reach up to God. They're trying to build their way to God through their efforts and good works. And the lesson here is that all religions end in failure and confusion. The word Babel, it actually means gate of heaven or gate of God. And this is what they're doing. They're trying to reach heaven, trying to reach God through their works. Isn't it interesting that every false religion, actually every false religion in the world, they claim to be the gateway to God, the gateway to heaven, yet they all fail in providing true access to God. Religion is man's attempt to reach God, and the result of it is always confusion. It always leaves men in a confused state about God. Whereas Christianity, it's not a relationship. And everybody needs to understand this. Christianity is not, did I say a relationship? Christianity is not a religion. 
It's a relationship. I'm getting better. I'm catching myself at the flubs. Okay? Christianity, it's not religion. When people say, oh, Gary, I'm so very religious like you. I say, hey, no. I used to be religious. I used to work out every day. Now I don't. You don't get like this by working out every day, let me tell you. But um, I used to be religious. I did things religiously. But now I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not initiated with man. It's initiated by God. It's not man trying to reach up to God. But Christianity is God reaching down to sinful man. It's not the finite man trying to get a hold of the infinite. It's the Christian God is infinite who's reaching down to the finite man. And religion, what religion does is it puts a trowel in a man's hand. It sends him door to door to sell magazines. It puts him on a, a bicycle to go out through the neighborhood, sends him on a two-year mission. That's what religion does. And he begins to work his way to God and build his way to God. But a relationship with Jesus Christ is just, it's world's different. It's so very different. True Christianity brings a person to a place where they realize that there's nothing they can do to gain access to God. True Christianity causes men to realize that they've been stained by sin and there's nothing that they can do in their own power to be cleansed from that sin. Christianity is not what I do that makes me acceptable to God, but it's embracing what He's done for me at the cross of Calvary that makes me acceptable to God. Jesus' finished work of salvation for us, dying for our sins, washing us in His blood. You know, the, again, the death of the innocent in place of the guilty. True Christianity is when we come to that place when we just accept the finished work of, of God and we, we rest in His substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus taking our sins and giving us His righteousness. It's pure grace. It's nothing but grace. It starts with grace. It ends with grace. It's nothing I can do to earn it. It's a free gift. That's what Christianity is. It's a relationship. It's a love relationship. And the exhortation is this. We need to be very careful never to allow ourselves to slip in to trying to relate to God based on our works. And it is. It's just very subtle. It's very subtle. And it's always going to lead to failure and confusion for us. We need to be very careful, never try. And again, it's so easy to begin to try to relate to God based on what I've done. You know, like his favor is dependent on something that I've done or haven't done. You know what? I'm not reading enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not anything enough. God doesn't love me because, boy, I haven't this or that or what. None of that is true. None of that is true. God's favor is upon us because we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is not because of anything that I've done. Our righteousness is because we've placed our faith in Christ. And real quick now, it's worth noting, verse 8 and 9, they both say the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And it's here that God not only divides the languages, but He also scatters the people across the face of the earth. Well, how did God do that? The answer is, we don't, we don't know. We don't have any details. Sometimes people ask, well, how did God get people onto different continents? And again, we don't know. We don't have those details. But maybe it was during this time that the continents began to drift apart, right? You know, the theory of Pangaea is that at one time, it was just all one big land mass, and then it was maybe at this time, you know, God scatters the inhabitants of the earth over this landmass, and then they begin to break apart and you have these continental drifts. Maybe that's what happened, probably. In my mind, I think that's plausible. I don't know. But remember Genesis 10, 25, we just read it not too long ago, said to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, talk to Rhea, for in his days, the earth was divided. 
And it would seem to me that this first, it actually supports that theory that there are land masses of the earth that began breaking up and uh, subsequently this continental drift and people found themselves on different continents. It's possible that the languages were divided and that was a reason that people began to spread out and then God divided the earth. Some people see Genesis 10, 25, however, as symbolically speaking of the earth being divided because it was at that time the languages were confused and divided. So like it wasn't actually the land divided is what their idea is. It's just like people just dispersed because they couldn't understand what anybody was saying. You know, and that's possible, you know, maybe that's what happened. I don't know. You can't be dogmatic about it. I personally believe that it's talking literally about the earth being divided. So that's my, that's my conviction. But before we move on, another question that people will ask you sometime is, where did all the races, the different races come from? And again, we don't know. We don't know. However, it says in Genesis 3.20, right? We're told that Eve was the mother of all living. Also in Acts 17.26, we're told that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And it wasn't until the recent discovery of mitochondrial DNA, and mitochondrial DNA is very important because it's strictly maternal. Mitochondrial DNA is only passed on through the mother. I have the article in my office here, mitochondrial DNA. What they did was they found, they discovered mitochondrial DNA, they started doing some testing and found out that everybody descends from one woman about 6,000 years ago. Boy, does it sound familiar? I mean, how interesting is that? You know, what's interesting is they called that first woman, they called her mitochondrial Eve. And the scientific community went, why do you got to call her Eve? You know, call her Betsy, whatever, you know, I don't know. Call her Mildred, mitochondrial Mildred, you know. But uh, yeah, how interesting. That's the way science, science is always behind the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak in scientific language. But every place that addresses something scientific, it's always accurate. That's what everybody needs to know, especially you kids in high school, kids in college. You know what? Evolution, I'll talk to you about evolution till your ears bleed. It is so bankrupt as a theory, it's ridiculous. Anyway, let's move on, okay? Verse 10, fasten your seatbelts. Lots of grace, please. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting ready. <laughs> Do some athletic feet. I don't know. Anyway, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad, two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years, begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And so we notice here that the lifespan of mankind is decreasing. And again, probably due to Remember that, that vapor canopy that was enveloping the earth that kept harmful UV rays out? Well, now that's gone, and so those UV rays are occurring. People are aging quicker. Uh, they're dying sooner. Sad fact of life. 
Now, Terah lives 70 years. Terah was a late bloomer, apparently, and it begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So verse 10 through verse 26 is the genealogy of Shem. And the reason it's being recorded here is it's a bridge that's being built from Abraham as a descendant of Noah and Adam. And it's through this line, Adam, Noah, Abraham, that the Messiah is going to come into the world, the blessing of the Messiah coming into the world. Again, listen, there are no Jews at this time, but this is the messianic line here. Verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, going to be known as Abraham soon, but Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. Now, this is the first mention of Abram. Again, later he's going to become to be known as Abraham. He's mentioned 312 times in 272 verses in the Bible. He's mentioned 74 times in the New Testament alone. You could argue that he's probably the most famous person in the Old Testament and certainly one of the most influential men in the history of the world. And I think it's an interesting thing to note that the book of Genesis It covers more than 2,000 years and 20 generations, but one-third of the book of Genesis is focused on Abraham, one man's life. And Abraham is such a unique character in the Bible. He was a just man, but you know what? Abraham had failures. I mean, he was just like everybody else. We're going to look at those failures as we go through the book. But he was called the friend of God, right? James 2.23 in the scriptures, scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Well, have you believed God today? You know, have you placed your faith in God's promised Messiah? Have you trusted in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sins? If so, and you know what? You're a friend of God too. You know, from now on, you can sign every document, Gary Barrow, friend of God. Well, you can't sign Gary Barrow. You got to insert your name there. You could, uh, I can't say Rhea's last name, Padelford. Rhea Padelford. Did I say it? Padelford, friend of God. Tammy Garbarino, friend of God. You know what? I don't know who's listening, you know. Say it out loud right now. My name here, friend of God. Telling you. What a great privilege we have. You know what? We place our faith in his provision for our sin. We place our faith in the Lamb of God. And we're known as friends of God. He's not ashamed to call us his his friends. He's not ashamed to call us his, his sons or daughters. He loves us. He's overjoyed with us. Verse 28. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? Chaldea is is Babylon. It's known as Babylon. Verse 29, Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And we read in verse 27, Haran begot Lot, But then Haran dies in in verse 28. And it would seem here that Abram and Sarah, they have no kids. So what do they do is they kind of grab Lot and they kind of adopt him as their own. Verse 31. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You know, it's very interesting to note, Abraham, he was from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Abraham was an idol-worshiping Gentile. And we see this, Joshua 24 too. Joshua says to all the people, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, which Abraham is one of them, including Terah, you know, a rabbinic tradition tells us that Terah, he was actually an idol maker, right? Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. They were idolaters. And it's crazy to think about Abraham in this way. But that's the way it was. Abraham, he was a, you know, steeped in sin, idol-worshiping Gentile, and God calls him. Man, it's such a picture of grace. Abraham wasn't looking for God when God called him. And, and you know what? He, like I said, he was steeped in sin. He was an idolater. He, he wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking for a relationship with God when God called him. But God called him to follow him, to walk with him, to give him Abraham's life. And uh, Abram, he placed his faith in God. He believed in God. He gave his life to God. And he was accounted as righteous for it. Now, the lesson here again, hey, listen, it's not enough to believe in a God. That's not enough. You must believe in the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. And you need to come to him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And when you believe in Jesus, you need to believe that he is God. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is God. He died for your sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. And when you place your faith in him, that faith is accounted to you as righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. And Jesus takes your sin and imparts his righteousness to you. And that's such a beautiful thing. It's a free gift. It's pure grace. Now, Acts makes it clear, makes it very clear, in fact, that the call to leave the land and go to Canaan, to a land that God would show him, that call came to Abraham. Acts 7, verses 2 through 4 says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and there the language is alone, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to the land in which you now dwell. You know, God called Abram to leave his land, to leave his family, and to come. And that was an invitation to follow. He said, come to a land that I'll show you. But you know what? Abram didn't obey. He didn't fully obey. What did he do? You know, he left his land, but instead of leaving his family, what did he do? He scoops up his nephew Lot. He grabs his dad. And instead of going to the land that, that God shows him there in Canaan, they don't actually cross over. They just go up river and kind of camp there. Partial obedience is no more than total disobedience. We need to understand that. And it's interesting here. There's such lessons here. Terah, it means delay. And heron means parched or barren. And when Abraham was in partial obedience, there was delay and barrenness. And that's what characterized his life during this period of time. If you delay in drawing close to God after you hear his voice calling you to believe in him and follow him, then your life also will be characterized by barrenness. The full, fruitful life only comes through complete obedience. Wherever you are today, I want to ask you to take a minute, take a minute right now, and just quiet your heart. Maybe put your Bible down for a minute. And just let God's Spirit speak to your heart right now. Is there an area in your life that's not surrendered to the Lord? You know, let God's heart speak to you. Is there an area of your life that you're just engaged in partial obedience? You know, has the Lord spoken to you about something, something He wants you to do, something that you've delayed in doing for whatever reason? You know, I would encourage you, you know, if there's something that 
You know, this is a time to let God's heart speak to your heart. And if there's something he's talked to you about, something he's asked you to do, some, some step of faith he's asked you to do, and you're delaying to do it, man, your life is just going to be characterized by barrenness until you get on with it. And I would encourage you, you know, don't delay any longer. Just take it to the Lord right now and confess it as sin and then take action to get into the place that he's called you to be. Don't delay. You know, do that thing he's instructed you to do. Abraham waited and his dad died. You know what? Don't wait till the death of a loved one to be obedient to what the Lord has called you to do. Don't do it. Don't let years go by, just wasted years. It's 13 years for Abraham during this period. It's 13 years. Don't, you know, let wasted time go by before you fully commit your heart to the Lord and what he's asked you to do. You know, a half-hearted commitment to the Lord is partial obedience. And that's at the very best. And again, it's only going to result in characterization of your life as barrenness. It's going to be unfruitful. It's going to be miserable. You know what? You want to get, man, you want to get under that spout where the grace comes out. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. I just want to encourage you, maybe as we pray right now, you just do business with the Lord. Maybe you get down on your knees. Maybe you just quietly just in the stillness of, of the moment, you just say, God, forgive me. Forgive me that I haven't followed through. Forgive me that, that I haven't obeyed in this area. Forgive me that I failed to surrender in this area, Lord. Forgive me. And you know, as you know, our loving Savior, man, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear running to Him, going to Him, humbly confessing your sin. He loves you. He loves you. There's nothing to fear at all. Man, I just encourage you, take a minute right now. Let's just close our eyes. Take a minute and just do business with the Lord. Just let Him minister to you right now and confess. Lord, I'm so thankful for your goodness and grace towards each one of us. Lord, I thank you for that free gift of salvation. Lord, I thank you that, that that grace that saved us, you know, it's not limited to that day. But there's still plenty of grace today. Still plenty of grace for tomorrow. There's mercy. We didn't exhaust the mercy that you have for us yesterday, last week, last month, last year. Lord, we woke this morning to new mercy and, and the, the supply of mercy towards us isn't running short right now here towards the end of the day. No, Lord, you love us. You sent your son to, to die on the cross that we might have forgiveness, Lord. For anybody that is struggling, Lord, you know the hearts of each person. You know the hearts. I just pray for your touch on their heart, Lord. Just, I just pray for a brokenness and a humility for my brothers and sisters and a fresh recommitment to following hard after you. Lord, just a word that's come into my mind quite a bit today is just returning to your first love. Restoring to us the joy of your salvation. Lord, would you just work that in, my brothers and sisters? Would you work that in us as a church, Lord? Forgive us for what we've made of it. What we made of worship, what we made of church, Lord. Just going through motions, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us. Fill us, Lord. God, call us. We'll follow, Lord. Will you just call us? We'll follow, Lord. Help us take those steps of obedience, Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and grace, Lord, for my, for my sisters and brothers at Calvary Chapel, Calvary on the Rock, Lord. I just pray you'd bless them. Bless them. Bless them with a great night. Bless them with just a wait for those that have just said, Lord, forgive me for this. Lord, just take that weight away from them and just refresh them. Lord, let your spirit bring refreshing to us entirely as a church, Lord. 
Maybe you're, you don't know Jesus today. You know what all you need to do is just ask for forgiveness in the sincerity of your heart. Say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Wash me. Cleanse me. Give me the Holy Spirit. Power me to live for you. And then follow hard after him. Get involved in fellowship. Get to the church. Read your Bible. Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters. Just thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thank you for your love. We give you praise, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. I love you. If you got a prayer need, you know what? Call the office. Let us pray for you, okay? If you have a prayer need and you're not sharing it, the devil's ripping you off because there's victory in prayer. Let's pray. Sunday morning, come 10 o'clock, Meadow Park. If I've never met you, come and say hi. I'd love to not shake your hand. You know, I'd love to look into your eyes only with our mask on and uh, just say, God bless you. I love you guys. Have a great night.